the goal tonight is going to be to move on to Isaac and Rebecca with a little bit of Abraham because Abraham's involved in their life. So we'll do that. So when you look at Isaac, you know, there's, a, there's actually a lot more on Isaac than you think in the Bible, but the, the child grows up. You find in Genesis 21 and was weaned. And Abraham makes a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And at this point, Ishmael would be like anywhere from 17 to 19, maybe even as old as 20, depending on how old Isaac was when he was weaned. Then Sarah sees the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. So she says to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And, you know, who knows to what extent, uh, you know, there could have been, what, there was 15, 15 uh, years between the two of them. And uh, it would have been a case where easily Isaac could have been picked on most of his life by Ishmael uh, at that point, at least when they're young. And, you know, you look at that whole story and you look back and realize, well, you know, some people had rough childhoods. Some of us did. Some people here, you know, even if you have Christadelphian parents, sometimes you can still have a rough childhood. And uh, rough Isaac certainly did. He had to put up with some bullying when he was young. Who knows to what extent he remembered it. But other people go through this even, you know, through their whole childhood years. Uh, sometimes it's from within your own family. Sometimes it's from within your ecclesia. Uh, sometimes it's at school for children when they're growing up. Uh, there's bullying that goes on in, in families and in schools and so on. And other times there's family issues where mom and dad don't get along and kids have to watch this and see mom and dad yelling at each other and fighting. Uh, you know, other times there's abusive parents sometimes where they actually get violent. And, the, you know, you look back at this and the natural tendency is to want to get all upset at this and think, well, this is all wrong. It's not right. And, you know, how can God let this happen? But God uses these things. He uses them to shape us into the image of Christ. And so we trust God for all those experiences that we lived through when we were younger. We don't make excuses for our current behavior. We don't look back and say, well, the reason I'm like this is because I had to live with that when I was growing up. We realize that God has empowered us to change our lives. So we don't make those kind of excuses. When Brad was talking about the, the humanistic spirit on, on Sunday morning in Sunday school, it's like the, a lot of times humanism, that approach of looking at it from the human perspective up, when they look at this and say, well, that's not fair. No child should have to go through this. Nobody should have to experience that. Uh, it's just not right. It's not fair. But these are the kind of tools that God uses in order to shape people's characters. If we had had more time in this whole series, we'd get to Joseph in the end. I, I still think he's the best example of this ever out there. But because look at what he dealt with in his family, with his brothers that hated him. They're jealous of him. His parents, all, all those moms that were there, they didn't get along at all. And he grows up in this totally dysfunctional family. And yet all the way through it, he's trusting God, that God's going to somehow turn this into good. And he, God shaped his character. You look at this man, you wonder, like, how in the world could he put up with all that? How could he be put in jail, get sold off to Egypt? How could he, you know, go through all those experiences and still look at his brothers when, when they come to him and say, hey, dad told us to tell you when he died that uh, please don't get angry at, at us and don't take it out on us. And they make up this story. And Joseph just looks at him like, am I in the place of God? 
You know, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is what all these bad things in childhood and experiences can do to people. They can, they can be changed and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what happens. So it really depends on our attitude. If people are constantly telling us all the time, oh, that's not fair, you shouldn't have to do this, and, and we start feeling sorry for ourselves, then we don't spiritually grow. If we realize that God's in control, and we, we counsel people and we encourage them that God's in control of this, God's going to bring something good out of this, um, pray about it, talk to God, and, and realize he's the one who's in control, not, not these other people that are doing all these things to you. Uh, then we can actually spiritually grow. So these experiences, they remind us that we aren't the one that's in control and they force us in life to really consider what's important so we don't get sidetracked on all the toys of this life and all the other things going on in this world. And it teaches us to rely on God because we go to him, we talk to him in prayer and we tell him what we're going through and ask for his help. And it develops faith because we trust God we learn to trust him and realize that although we, we hate what we're going through and we really wish we didn't have to, we understand he's going to bring good out of a bad situation. And then we think, well, you know what? That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. You know, he never said to his father, this isn't fair. He asked him in the garden. He said, is there any other way? But nevertheless, your will be done. But he trusted his God all the way through. He trusted his father that God was going to bring good out of all the persecution and the trouble that he was experiencing. And that's the kind of attitude that we want to have, the, the mind of Jesus Christ. What we don't want to do is use it as an excuse later on in life to mistreat people and say, well, you know, I'm like this because of my dad, or I'm like this because of my mother or my sisters or whatever. Uh, I hear a lot of that amongst the, the counseling of this world. And you know, I used to hear that in, in teachers all the time, that all oh, the kids are only like that because of their parents. But for us, when we're letting God influence our life, we don't want to make excuses like that as to why we can mistreat other people. It's really not a valid thing. Oops, we got to admit somebody there. So we know that God can use these things to bring about good. And we trust him that he's the one who's in control. So, yeah, remember Joseph, right? No matter how bad you think you get mistreated by somebody, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's your parents or whether it's your siblings or your ecclesia or at work or at school or wherever you are, remember, like Joseph, that although they may mean it for evil and people aren't treating you very nice and it really, you know, from your perspective, it's just wrong. Remember that God can still use it for good if we let him. If we get angry at people and we get all mad and we blame God, we blame everybody else, uh, it doesn't work. But when we realize and trust that God's in control, he can bring out good, which is why in Hebrews 12, after going through all those people in Hebrews 11, all those people of faith, you, know, you get to Hebrews 12 and he, and he reminds us that Jesus went through this too. You know, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And look at what he went through. Well, look what his father put him through in order to train him. And, you know, he says, uh, if you've forgotten the exhortation in which he speaks to you as sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. 
Now, I think in our life, I know I look back at my own life and realize there were so many times where I didn't realize that this was all part of the chastening of God. And instead, I blamed other people for what they were doing uh, to me or my family or my ecclesia or whatever. And I didn't realize that, you know, you, we have to focus on the fact that God's in control. He's, he's using all of this to bring about good. And we, we have to get through this and talk to him about it and realize it's all part of the chastening program because the medicine is tough to be trained into the image of Christ. And Paul's honest. He says in verse 11 that no chastening for the moment you know, is joyful. It's painful. But nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's a training program. And if we believe God's in control and we really trust what he brings into our life, we will realize that he can use the bad things that other people might do to us. He uses them to train us. He's totally in control and he's doing it for our good so that we can share his holiness. So when you watch what Abraham and Sarah do in this case, when, when, they, uh, when Ishmael is, is uh, treating Isaac like that, you know, Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. Abraham's distressed. He, he's like, come on, you know, this is like my 16, 17, 18 year old boy that I have worked with all these years and I've been trying to train him and teach him. And this is my son. But God assures Abraham that no, you know, it's okay. You do what Sarah wants. And so Sarah or Abraham does. He puts, he says, look at the handmaid. She's your handmaid and you can do what you want. Now I've heard a lot of Christadelphian classes over the years on this. And sometimes once in a while, a brother will just like really rip on Sarah for like how mean she was and bad she was and all this kind of stuff. But when you look in the New Testament, you find out that the New Testament looks at this and interprets this incident as though Sarah's got the right idea here. She understood that Ishmael was not part of God's election and he didn't belong in the household. So in Galatians 4, you find that, you know, we brethren, he's, Paul says, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now, because that's what they were currently experiencing. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And Sarah seems to have caught on to this and accepted it much faster than Abraham, who's still worrying about Ishmael and wanting Ishmael to be part of this. And, uh, and yet Sarah understands that God's election, he had chosen Isaac as the child of the promise. And he was not working through Ishmael and his descendants at that time. That was not part of the plan. So fortunately, Abraham and Sarah, even though uh, it really wasn't what Abraham wanted, Abraham accepted that and worked with Sarah and they came up with a plan and Hagar and, and Ishmael were out. So then you come to Genesis 22, and really I've appreciated with Isaac a lot. You know, I used to think that reading all these kids, you know, books to our children, they always pictured Isaac as like a little, you know, six-year-old, seven-year-old boy. Then you come to find out, well, probably at this point in his life, he's probably a teenager, probably a late teen. He probably could have picked up Abraham and uh, put him on the altar. Uh, and yet, as you're reading through this story, you can appreciate this concept of obedience for, for, uh, for Isaac. 
So when God told Abraham, he said, take now your son. And notice he says here, your only son, Isaac. He doesn't count Ishmael as one of Abraham's sons. He never calls Ishmael a son of Abraham. He only calls him the child or the lad, depending on which Bible version you use, because God did not include Ishmael in his election. So he says, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now look at this. Abraham rises early in the morning, saddles his donkey, takes two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. You know, total obedience uh, in faith uh, out of Abraham. And that example of obedience and faith is what got transferred then down to Isaac, because you find in this story, both of these characters are unbelievably obedient by faith. And they both realized uh, that God could be trusted. And so they did what God asked them to do, even though at the moment they may not understand it, they were still willing to abide by what God had asked. And I think in this story, what God is after, if you're you're looking at, well, why is this even here? God's trying to teach Abraham and all the rest of the family from there on in that read this story, what it was going to cost God to save us all. You know, Abraham, as he's walking along, thinking about killing his son, Isaac, and putting him up there on the altar and burning him up. And he's thinking about all these things that he's going to have to do to his son, In the end, he comes home realizing, I didn't have to do that to my son, but God is going to do that with his son. And uh, I really think it was designed for everyone to appreciate uh, what Jesus Christ would go through and what it would cost God. But obedience, this concept of being obedient to God, this is really what God is after in all of us. He wants us to be obedient. So as parents raising children, we we have to raise children and teach them obedience. They they don't know that by nature. That's not something that that humans just want to do. You find that out when your child's about a year old and they first say no. (laughs) And uh, you start watching their behaviors as as they grow up and realize how they've got their own will and their own will is what they want to do all the time. I'm seeing that even with my grandchildren right now. Uh, And I remember with my own children that I was just amazed at how early on it started. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter six, there at verse one, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he quotes the, the commandment, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. The promise was that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth by obeying your parents. But the reason that commandment is there, it's not just some sort of rule to be obeyed. It's not like you're just following a law that says children obey your parents. So because God said it, I got to do it. What he's trying to do is in our families, as parents, we're teaching our children obedience. And as children, we're learning to obey so that as we get older, we can transfer that obedience to God. We've learned how to be obedient. And so there are situations in life where we can be put in in circumstances where we learn to obey or somebody else is in control. And those are good things for us. This is why in the Bible, you know, a lot of times people in the United States figure that, that slavery is totally wrong. And how could anybody ever agree with slavery? But God actually used slavery to teach these kind of concepts. 
to teach obedience, to teach taking care of people. Uh, it wasn't not, not slavery like they did in the United States uh, years ago where people were sometimes abused, but, uh, but the right kind of slavery where you can be under somebody else and you can learn to obey and you can learn to follow directions so that you transfer that to God. It's good training. So, you know, our, our children are supposed to be learning obedience from us as parents and grandparents and ecclesial members. We have to train our children. But when you train your children, I, I wouldn't suggest necessarily reading books written by people today about how to train your children uh, un unless they're using the Bible as their basis. What we want to do is look through the Bible at how God trains us and use that as the basis for training our children. Because the goal isn't just to train our children for this life. We're supposed to be training them to understand how God is going to work with them. That's the game plan. And so we raise them with that balance of discipline and compassion and mercy and all those things that we, that we do with our children. We try to raise them the way God treats me. And, and that's what happens. You pass on the character of God then to your children. And it doesn't always work. You know, some people look at that and they say, well, you know, so-and-so's child, they didn't come into truth. They don't really love God or, or whatever. But let's face it, God's training program doesn't always work either. There are times where it doesn't work for him. He calls somebody into the family, tries to work with them, and yet they're not willing to cooperate with his training program. And so it doesn't always work, but it's the right training program to, to train people to be part of God's family. So we, as we're doing the Bible readings, we look for these things. We look for like, how is God treating us? How is he training us? What's he doing with us uh, as we're going through all these uh, Bible studies? And we then transfer that over to how we raise our children, how we treat our ecclesial members, and hopefully they're learning about the character of God. When you, when you look at obedience in the scriptures, there are places all over the Bible where obedience is emphasized. God wants obedience. You remember when, when Samuel got after Saul for going ahead and offering the sacrifice, and he didn't wait for Samuel to show up. And he says to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You know, does God really care about all these procedures that we go through, all these ritual things and offering sacrifices. And does God really care about all that procedural stuff that we do today versus obeying the voice of the Lord? Because to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For he tells Saul that rebellion is that's the sin of witchcraft. Sure, you went through the land and you eliminated the witches, but you didn't obey God. Yet that rebellion is just like the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as being king. So, you know, this was Saul's great test. He didn't aim at obedience to God. He worked it out his way. And you could imagine there's, there's a list of passages a mile long about how God expects obedience from us. You know, you know, find the apostles in Acts 5 that was to obey God rather than men. That was the principle. Or slaves in, in, in Romans chapter 6, we have been freed from slavery to sin. But our freedom from sin and slavery to sin is so that we can now be obedient to God. And God can become our master. 
or Hebrews 5 in verse 9, that Jesus Christ has opened up salvation to all who obey him. And the contrast in, in Hebrews 3 was with that generation in the wilderness who never entered in the land because they did not obey. They didn't have faith to obey. And 1 Peter 1 and verse 4, Peter talks about as obedient children, you know, we, we give up on our former way of life. And now we have a way of life where we are obeying God. Uh, and, and we don't go back to those former behaviors that we used to have. And what faith allows us to do, brethren and sisters, is obey God, even when we don't understand. We may not realize why something's happening or why this I'm going through this or what, whatever the experience is, we may not yet understand, but we can still obey God in faith because we believe he's in control and he's going to use it for good. And as James says, that so we can talk to him and we can ask for wisdom to understand our trials in, in James chapter one. That's okay. And uh, they, we asked our God to try to help us understand. You might remember in, in Jeremiah seven, uh, you know, this was a reading you did some time ago, but in Jeremiah seven, uh, Jeremiah was with, with God at this point. God was trying to emphasize the fact that, look at these people are, are gotten so bad. I'm going to have to kick them out of Jerusalem. I'm going to kick them out of the land and take them away, and I'm going to destroy the city. And God says in verse 21, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add to your burnt offering or add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. And this is what the people were doing at that time. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. I didn't really want those. Those were supposed to be a mechanism to try to help you develop a relationship with God, uh, uh, one in which you learned about what Messiah would do, and you would now understand God's plan. But what I really wanted was obedience. But this command I gave them in verse 23, obey my voice. It comes right out of Exodus 19 when he brought them to the mountain. And I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, and walked according to their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. and went backward and not forward. That's what happened. So if you go back and look in Exodus 19, you can see that when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he saved them through the Red Sea, brings them up to the mountain, and they're gonna meet with the angel. They're gonna meet with God to them at that time. Right, And he tells Moses, look at, tell the children of Israel in verse four, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God had wanted to do for this nation if they would obey his voice. But instead, so many of the Jews just turned it into something where they thought they deserved it. They thought that they were, they were empowered now to where they were the special people and they were above everybody else on the earth, that they didn't really have to change. They were just special by birth. And unfortunately, that really uh, was a destructive concept that came into the community. So, you know, back in Hebrews 12, when you look at Jesus being the example for all of us, we, we shouldn't expect it to be any different in our lives than it was for Jesus Christ. When you, when you look at all the things he had to endure, especially through the crucifixion, 
Uh, and the emphasis in the Gospels is all about how Christ endured everything. He never retaliated. So after Hebrews 11, Paul then goes on and says, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us because that's what they needed, endurance, because of the persecutions that were coming. So he sees us running a race where what you do is you fix your eyes on the goal, on the, on the finish line. We run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's standing there at the finish line. He's already there. He's the author and perfecter of faith. Not our faith. He's the author and perfecter of faith in the Greek, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the translators don't get the fact that Jesus Christ had faith, but that's what Paul wrote. He, after going through all those people in Hebrews 11, he finishes with Jesus, who's the ultimate example of the author and perfecter of faith. And that faith drove him to put up with all the things that people did and trust that God was in control and that God would use it for good. And so he goes on to his exhortation that don't expect it to be anything different for you, because if it isn't, you're not legitimate sons. Or in Romans chapter one, it's uh, interesting when Paul starts out his letter to the Romans, he uses a phrase in verse five there where he talks about through Jesus and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. So Paul's going to like expand this gospel to the Gentiles. But what are they being called to? They're being called to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, a lot of our Bible versions put in there obedience to the faith because they don't get it. They, they thought that th this was like you're supposed to be obedient to what? The faith, the faith that you belong to, the church that you're in or whatever. But what Paul is after is the fact that Jews and Gentiles, everybody must become obedient. Uh, it must develop the obedience that comes from faith. And that's what his letter is really all about, is that faith has the power to turn us into different people so that we will become obedient to God and treat people different and function differently because of what God has done for us. Remember John Carter, and that's in his book, he, he rendered that section there that the obedience springing from faith might be rendered by some from among all the nations to Christ's glory. And he's contrasting, Paul is contrasting here, not obedience to law, not going through these ritualistic procedures about people caring about what kind of dress you wear or what kind of you know, uh, uh, offering that you make or you know, what day of the week is it and all these kind of things that Jews got so hung up on. Instead, we simply are obedient to God and we trust that whatever people do to us and whatever God brings into our life, that God can use it for good. And we believe it and we live that way and we thank God for what he can do. And Abraham offering up Isaac is like the ultimate example of that concept, because this has the power to change us, brethren and sisters. It's much more powerful than anything else you could ever go to. It's more powerful than a good spouse. It's more powerful than all the education you could ever do reading up on stuff. The, God's, the, the power he can develop in us of the faith that he can engender in us through Jesus Christ through the reading of his word and the angel's involvement in our lives and all the people we're connected with, it can change us in ways that we don't think are possible. It can do that. 
it can change us into the image of Jesus Christ if we let him, if we let him. So we'll move on to the wife for Isaac. This one was always interesting in Genesis 24 now where Eliezer, Abraham summons him. Sarah is now dead and Abraham realizes he's going to have to take care of getting a wife for Isaac. He doesn't want Isaac to marry any of the Canaanites. None of that. You know, you'd already watched uh, Esau marry two of the Hittite women. Uh, it didn't like that later on. So, well, that was later. But Abraham now, he's going to get a wife for Isaac. And he wants to make sure that they take the wife for Isaac out of one of the people of the family of God. And later on, Rebecca ends up doing the same thing for Jacob. So he tells Eliezer in chapter 24 at verse 6, don't take Isaac back there. Uh, this, is, this is Abraham. He's realizing it's not good to send Isaac back there. Look at all the trouble that Jacob went through when he got back there. And Isaac ends up being the only patriarch who never leaves the land. Everybody else goes away for a while, but not Isaac. He stays in the land. And as you watch this story unfold that we're, that we're doing their readings, you know, Eliezer's praying, Abraham's praying, Isaac's praying. They're all praying. Then they're all trusting that God is going to do something that is important in their lives that they can't really figure out themselves. And it, it's fun to watch that, the power of prayer and the belief in these people's lives that when they prayed about something that God would act. He was going to take care of them because they believed they were part of the family of God. And prayer is a big issue in everyone's life at this point. And uh, you know the stories, but you, you watch how this works. So I think the exhortation that comes out of this to parents is, in the same way that Abraham took care of Isaac, we have to, parents, we have to be planning for the spiritual health of our children. We, we've got to do that. We've got to get the Bible readings done at home. And we've got to get our kids out to Sunday school or CYC and weekend gatherings. We, and other, we got to get them with other children who are going to help them grow spiritually and invite other children over to our homes. We have to have people over so that our children will associate with and learn the values, the good godly values that are there in our community. And as we're doing all that, we have to make it clear to our kids that doing God's will is the most important goal of our lives. That's what we're doing this for. We're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it because it is the will of God. And all along the way, I, I know it took me too long to learn this lesson, but all along the way, instead of just looking at it as I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, we have to be praying that God will include our children in his election and do the impossible, that he will save them. Because all the part that we do and, and doing the Bible readings and the Sunday school and all these things, it's, it's a critical part of raising godly children. But in the end, if God doesn't do the impossible and work in their lives and send angels to be involved in their lives and open the eyes of their understanding to his word, then it's, it's all for naught in a sense because uh, it's, God has not included them in his family and so his election, it's his family. It's not mine. They're his children. They're not ours. And we've got to keep that in mind as we're going along. And, you know, and sometimes God has to remind us where some of the children walk away from the truth. Sometimes that happens because we need reminders to understand that no matter what I do, it's not what I want. And it's not how hard I work. 
but it's God's election. As Paul says in Romans chapter nine, it's all about what God does. And so we pray that he will do the impossible and he will call those children and open the eyes of their understanding and that we can just assist in the project. That's what we're after. Now, you notice when Abraham's so concerned about taking a wife for Isaac up there from the family, you know, this, this gets, you know, backed up and, and supported all the way through the scriptures that God wants us to marry believers. I wouldn't say Christadelphians there. I, I would say that God wants us to marry believers. That's what we want to find. Somebody who's really committed to God. Because as Paul says, don't be mismated with unbelievers. This is the RSV in, in 2 Corinthians 6. For what partnership have righteousness and iniquity? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Because God said, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, to the younger ones that, that might be here tonight, or people that are counseling the young people, this is not just some rule that we set up and we just say, well, God said it, so we got to do it. It's a rule. It's not a rule to be followed. It's a guiding principle to help us. God wants us to be in his family, but he realizes that a marriage is so important, influencing the rest of our life, that we need to find somebody who will help us, who, we, who will walk together with us in, in, his, in his family. He wants our marriages to help us. And so he's left behind guiding principles that look at, I care about you. So yes, find a believer because unbelievers may drag you down. They may lead you the wrong way and encourage you to do the wrong things. And it could cost you your spiritual life as uh, you know, it's, it, it, without God doing miraculous things. As you can see, like in the life of Solomon, that's what he's really after. So Eliezer, he goes a long way, travels all the way up there uh, to where the family was up there in Syria. 600 miles he goes uh, to get a wife for Isaac. And it's because it was an important thing for them. So as Paul says that when you get married in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, I would think as a principle for all of us today that if that's what Paul says about a believer who loses their husband or their, their wife, that they are free to be married to somebody, but only in the Lord, that that would be a principle we want to extend into all of our marriages when, when, when uh, encourage our, our children that this is what we want. And, but, but Paul is trying to lay a principle out here that God wants our marriages to succeed. He wants the children to grow up in a godly family and that the children can watch a mom and dad who are teaching them about the ways of God. And so it's important that you find a spouse in the Lord. And that's what we want to do. Now, remember what the angels had told Abraham when they were, uh, when they were having their little discussion. Uh, actually, they didn't tell Abraham, but they, they had the discussion back in Genesis 18. Shall we go back and tell them what we're going to do with, with Sodom? And the response they give there is, for I have known him. And that's that word known, just like Adam knew his wife. That they had intimately known Abraham in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So that's what we want to counsel our younger people growing up right now. We want to give them all the reasons why 
God wants us to marry in the Lord because he wants what's best for us. He wants us to be in his spiritual family, and he wants us to find a spouse who will help us in that way. When you look at the marriages in our community that are good marriages and, and have succeeded, and God has blessed those marriages, you, you, you realize these aren't just a random kind of thing. I mean, they're just not haphazard. They're the result of a, a man and a woman praying daily that God will somehow make this work when, you know, by, by nature, it just doesn't, as you watch happening in the world all the time. So godly parents, what we do is we pray for God's help and his blessing. And we recognize that it's going to take daily effort. This, this doesn't just happen on its own. So we read the Bible together. We talk about those Bible principles. We work on ecclesial projects together and other projects in our families. And we don't try to change our partner. We, we try to change ourselves. We are aiming at Jesus Christ. And we trust that God will change our partner. But that's what helps marriages work together. And God then can bless these marriages and you grow and appreciate each other. And you learn to practice faithfulness and mercy and compassion and kindness. You learn to love somebody like God loves us. And that's the result of a lot of daily work. And, and uh, when it's all done, you know, the other important part is thank God for success. Don't ever think it's because I worked hard or I read all these books or I did all this work and I did it and I did it's all the result of the blessings of God, because as Proverbs 19 says, that a prudent wife is from the Lord. So we talk to God daily, we ask for his help in our marriages, and we realize that one plants and another waters, but it's God who gives the growth, and we constantly give God the credit. Now, when you look at the marriage commitment of both Isaac and Rebecca, I've been fascinated to watch these two especially, because Isaac didn't even know who this lady was. And here she is coming back to marry him. It's not like Jacob who goes out there looking for, for a spouse or something. Isaac's just waiting to find out, well, who'd you pick? Who's coming back? And so here's the two of these people, Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca doesn't even know Isaac. So she's on her way from the north, making this 600-mile journey to meet this fella she's going to marry. And Isaac's finding this girl who he doesn't know at all. He's going to marry her. Neither one of them went out looking themselves. It wasn't like they searched and they tried to find the perfect partner or something like that. Instead, it was motivated by faith in the God of Abraham. They trusted that their God would provide. They completely depended on God to make it work. And I really have, have noticed that with arranged marriages in, in life today, when you look around the world at people that have arranged marriages, they have a whole different approach to marriage than we have here in the United States, where you go out and you, you find the perfect spouse kind of thing. Uh, they, these people, they realize from the start that, look at, I didn't pick you, you didn't pick me, we are going to have to work at this to make it work. And you, they learn to trust, uh, you know, from a, a godly perspective, you learn to trust God a lot more. I think then that oh, those of us with our, our young people today that just go out looking and choosing by themselves and you watch what happens. There's a lot of looking around today and a lot of choosing by us. And what happens in our community, brothers and sisters, is a, a year or two or three years down the line, people look at their spouse and they say, I made a mistake. I, I married the wrong person. And it's like, What? You don't find people saying that that have an arranged marriage because they never made the choice in the first place. 
they realized that it was going to take a miracle of God to make this work. And both people were going to have to trust God to the utmost. And we never want to look at this that way. We want to start out from the beginning in our marriages, praying to God, trusting God that he will be involved in who we find. We find a godly person who's involved in the community and will help us and assist us in our walk to the kingdom. And we never look back and say, I made a mistake because we trust that no matter who we married, God can make it work. He can. And we put way too much emphasis today on all these expensive, elaborate weddings. And we think somehow that if you have this fancy Cinderella wedding, that uh, that's going to make your marriage work. And, and you find out it doesn't. And, you know, you look at Isaac and Rebecca. I'm, I'm just amazed at the, the way the scriptures read in Genesis 24, at verse 67. When Rebecca shows up, it simply says, Isaac brought Rebecca into his mother Sarah's tent. And they worked on it and they worked on it and they prayed about it and they made their marriage work. And it's a different perspective than we're used to today. And uh, it would be good for our young people to be a little more balanced on this idea of thinking, I got to go out there and find the perfect right spouse. Uh, and and we got to trust a little bit more that God's going to be involved in our marriages and God can make them work. So you look at the, the response of these people when this one's uh, when Genesis 24, when uh, when they go up there to get Rebecca and Rebecca's coming back down and Eliezer gives her the choice. And so did the family. They said, all right, we'll call Rebecca and we'll tell her, you know, will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. That, that's her response. She has no idea, you know, what's really happening here, where she's going, uh, who this man is she's going to marry. But Rebecca trusted that God would make it work. And that kind of spiritual attitude, that faith and trust in God is what drives her throughout the, the rest of her life, really. And uh, she leaves her home, her family, her friends. She accepts a whole new family. She accepts her husband and accepts that God will help her make this work. And it's a great spiritual attitude to have. Now, as they go along, things weren't all Cinderella for Isaac and Rebecca at all. You know, Rebecca was trying to have children. Isaac wanted to have a child. They, they feel like this is the family who's going to be the, the line at which God's promises are going to go through. And they're, they're pleading with God in Genesis 25. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now, when you read that verse, you got a Bible mark in the margin that this has been going on for 20 years, 20 years they're praying for a child. You know, it because you find that out because Rebecca marries him at 40 years old and, and Jacob and uh, Isaac rather was 40 years old and Jacob's born when Isaac is 60. So we find out that they waited 20 years. Now you notice that they learned from Abraham and Sarah, they didn't go looking for a handmaid they didn't go find some slave woman in order to try to work it out themselves. They trusted that God was going to work this out. And I think that's a great lesson that you can look back through the experiences of history, things that our parents and our grandparents did that maybe as, as younger people, we look at these things and we think, wow, that didn't work out so well. And God does expect us to learn from the mistakes of the past and try not to repeat them. Uh, that's what we want to do. And, and in this case here, Isaac and Rebecca seem to realize that, wow, that didn't turn out so good. When, when Hagar got involved, it just turned into a disaster. And so Isaac and Rebecca stuck it out. They waited patiently 20 years later, 
God grants them twins and twins are finally born. Actually, when you look at the twins of Jacob and Esau, we don't have time tonight to go into God's election, but it's a fun story to look at because what God did you know, in, in Romans chapter nine, Paul points out to look at God waited long enough with Abraham and Sarah that they would work it out their own way and use Hagar to have a child. And then God would have to say, nope, he's not part of the election. I'm working with a child of promise that I will provide because God wanted Abraham's children to realize that it isn't about what we want and it's not about how hard we work, but it's about God's mercy. It's his election and it's his family. And if he doesn't extend his mercy to our children, they will not be saved no matter how hard we try. And if you think that's, that's a bit far-fetched, Paul points out in Romans 9 that to make it totally clear to the Jews, what God did in the next generation is he had one man, one woman, Isaac and Rebekah, and twins were born at the same time. And God said, I'm going to work through Isaac. That's what I'm going to do. And uh, I'm going to work through uh, Jacob in this case and not through Esau. And it's just, it's an amazing story in Romans 9 about how God put right in the record back here, these critical family life lessons that they would learn to understand if they read carefully, that it's about God's family, God's election, not about how hard we work or how hard we try. We do our part, but it's all about God's family. So it's, it's fun to look at, you know, the common kind of problems that you run into even today. But you can see this with Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. It tells us that in Genesis 25. But Isaac, what he did is he showed the parental weaknesses. He, he didn't realize, you know, God had told them that the younger one was going to be the one and it would, uh, that the, uh, the older one would serve the younger one. But Isaac favored the child who provided him with meat, who had his kind of life that he liked. And, you know, Rebecca, on the other hand, realizes that, hey, Jacob is the one that God is going to use. And we want to be careful as parents that we don't favor our children one over the other, thinking that one is better than the other or that they're, they're better in ecclesial life than the other one. But what we want to do is appreciate all of the godly children, all of them, and try to make sure they realize that all of them are loved. I think maybe uh, I'm going to leave it at that right now.